A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there. This is when. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And diplomacy fails the Versailles anniversary project. My name is Zach Twomley, and you are a history friend. This episode is brought to you by The Delegation Game. If you weren't aware, The Delegation Game is your chance to see if you could do better than these people were doing a century ago. It is a role-playing, fantasy football, fantasy booking style game where you choose a character, you send him or her to Paris, and I narrate their exploits, negotiate with other delegates, try and pass schemes, vote on resolutions, and see if, by the end of the whole process, you'll actually make Europe and the world a better place. Or maybe not. Maybe you'll end up in prison, or blown up, or you'll blow the world up, or a mixture of all of these options. Currently at the moment, Marshal Ferdinand Foch is misbehaving a wee bit, and all the delegates are responding accordingly. And it's a very, very interesting thing, which nobody really saw coming, but that's what you get when you try to accredit all those German delegates and make a council of 12 instead of a council of 10. If you're playing the delegation game, or even listening to it, Listening is free, by the way. You can do that at any time. Just click on one of those Delegation Game episodes. There's ten of them already. And you'll be able to listen in on the exploits of the game. However, if you want to have a role in shaping how that game transpires, how it plays out, and how, of course, it ends up, 
then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. And for $6 a month, you can punch your ticket, you can stamp your visa to Paris, and you'll be able to take part in it. At least, it was going on in Paris, and now I'm not quite sure where it's going on. Perhaps in London, perhaps in Brest, maybe in the Hotel Zachary or somewhere else. Who knows? But it's taking place, and we're all ready to welcome you there. Perhaps you can have a really important role. Perhaps you're just going to join us so that you can make a big mess. I feel like some people are doing that by accident. So maybe if you do that on purpose, it'll be even more fantastic. Either way, it's never too late to join. Some people have joined up only in the last few weeks. Some people have been with us from the beginning and didn't last all that long because they got killed off. But the point is, there's something for everyone here and it's never too late or too early to join. Of course, if you do join, if you do pay that $6 a month, you'll be able to access all that extra juicy content that we already have released in the extra podcast feed. So, what are you waiting for? Maybe for that $6 to fall into your lap? Or maybe for me to push you into pressing on that button and saying, yes, I will support. In any case, guys, Patreon is the way I make my living from this podcast. Advertising revenue is incredibly unreliable and really not that fantastic. Merchandise sometimes costs me more to send to you rather than actually making me money. But I don't care what people say, it's freaking cool to have people wear my stuff, so I don't really mind about that. In the future, when I send you guys books, again, it's going to be really fun to send you all those books. But also, again, I kind of, sort of, spent all that money that was sent to me when you guys were buying those books. So we're in a position now where I have to send them all to you. I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but the long and short of it is, Patreon is what makes my money. Nothing really else does. And that's fine. That's the way I like it, because it means you guys vote with your wallets, and you decide that this is worth your time and worth your money to give me a small amount every month. And you could say, Zach, it's charity. Stop asking me for money. But On the other hand, it's not charity, because I'm not asking for money for nothing in return. I'm asking for money so that you can either chow down on extra podcast content, on ad-free content, on accessing the scripts, or as I said at the beginning, playing the delegation game. A whole load of stuff is out there if you just want to go and check it out, and I've had several patrons sign up in the last few weeks and last few days, so thanks so much for that. We are zeroing in on 300 patrons, guys, which is really cool because it means 300 history friends are supporting this show and helping to make history thrive at the same time. I can't thank you enough, but I can say thanks a couple of hundred million times. So I do. And I also say thanks to you for listening to this show because the best thing you can do to support, of course, is to simply download or stream or whatever you do and begin enjoying history, which is what we're all here for. So let's listen to this episode the latest episode on the Versailles Anniversary Project. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 53. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 53. 
Last time we focused on the first week of April 1919, we saw several important questions and debates flash before us. Franco-American tensions, Clemenceau's dislike of Wilson, Wilson's declining health, House's letting loose with criticism of his friend and president in his diary like never before, the analysis of the Czechoslovak committee, Harold Nicholson's trip to Budapest alongside Jan Smuts to see whether something could be gained from dealing with Belakun's Bolshevik-Hungarian regime. Oh boy, the list was certainly a long one, and we have by no means reached the end of the issues covered. Something which has been notably missing from our narrative is any real trace of Asia, or the Middle East, or Africa, or really any other theatre that is not Europe. I can't promise that we'll have time to look at all the other outstanding theatres. I would of course love to trace what happens in the Ottoman Empire after the Treaty of Versailles is signed, but while I would love to do that, I know that I have alternative commitments. So, who knows, maybe we'll revisit this period in the future. In fact, I very much would like to revisit the interwar period in the future. But for now, this is the Treaty of Versailles. This is the Versailles anniversary project that we're here for. So I have to try and keep us focused. As I said in the introduction to this series back in November, if I don't keep some kind of handle on what we cover, we'll be here for the next 100 years. Maybe you don't mind, but today we are actually trying to expand our focus a wee bit to look at Asia. In fact, more specifically, just in case you get scared away by that very idea of expanding our focus, we're going to be looking at Japan. Despite having a five-man delegation in line with those of the Western powers, and despite sitting on the Council of Ten, the Japanese found that they were not invited to sit at the Council of Four. They would sit on the Council of Foreign Ministers instead. This was a troubling sign for the sensitive Japanese, but what was more troubling still was the possibility that they might not get what they wanted, or in other words, what they had declared war on Germany and travelled all the way to Paris in order to get. These aims were multi-layered. The Japanese wanted to have their seizures of German possessions in Asia ratified, particularly on the Shantung Peninsula, but they also wanted something else. There was an expectation that, with the advent of the Paris Peace Conference, and the previous announcement of the 14 points before that, Japan might finally be treated like the rest of the great powers of the world. To codify this development, the Japanese proposed nothing less than a clause in the Treaty of Versailles which would qualify racial equality in international relations. This idea, which was akin to political dynamite, enjoyed a passionate and well-intentioned support base in Japan, but it was not to pass. The arrival of Japan in our narrative has been a long time coming, but as fascinating as their cause and their case is, they were by no means the main event of April 1919. While their racial equality proposal would be quashed on the 11th of April, the Japanese were able to gain much from subsequent threats to leave the conference. These threats were listened to because another power, Italy, had left the conference, and those in Paris worried that if the Japanese also left, then the whole procedure would just splinter apart. So Japan leveraged its advantageous position, gaining in the process no recognition of racial equality, but acceptance, on the other hand, of its gains in Asia. This was of course wholly unacceptable to the Chinese, who felt this decision in the Allied ranks as a bitter betrayal, but the Allies had long since ceased to care about what that crumbling power thought. Before we jump into the scene where the Japanese proposals were rejected, and she began to build a plan to capitalise upon Allied divisions, we should examine what exactly the situation was in Japan in spring 1919, what she thought of the Paris Peace Conference, then ongoing, what she hoped to achieve, what her statesmen planned, and where their schemes fit into the wider picture 
of the Peace Conference. Without any further ado then, I hope you enjoy this examination of an expanded topic of the Paris Peace Conference. I am not worried about any general lack of patriotism, but afraid of where an abundance of patriotism might lead us. This statement fell from the lips of Prince Sione in 1913, a year before Japan entered the fray on the side of the Allied powers, and consequently stepped off the platform of local Asian affairs and onto the world stage. It was quite a step for Japan to take, and as Sione imagined, there was never any danger that the Japanese people would fail to support their homeland in any crisis which emerged from it. Instead, to this wealthy, internationalized, Western-educated liberal member of Japan's royal family, the danger was that through the passions which flowed from her foreign engagements, his country, Prince Sione's country, would be led towards the abyss. It was, as statements go, profoundly prophetic in a period when prophetic statements were all the rage. A former premier and foreign minister of Japan, Sione was qualified to serve as the leader of Japan's delegation, but only from early March onwards, when Tokyo realised that its delegation was not being taken seriously enough. Sione was rarely seen in public though, which prompted the French press to ponder whether the distinguished statesman was actually present in Paris at all. And this was not all that the foreign presses pondered about Japan. By all standards of the day, Japan was a strange conglomeration of interests and forces. It was completely unique in that it had withstood the period of the scramble for Asia only to industrialise on steroids and join the ranks of the great powers thereafter. It had defeated two considerable entities, the Chinese and then the Russians, before the Great War had even begun. It had opened up itself to Western ideals like liberal democracy, but it retained its old feudal hierarchy and clung resolutely to its divine monarchy and religion. Practically speaking, it had swollen like a sponge. The population of Japan increased faster than any other Asian power from the late 1860s to 1914, to the extent that its governments became vexed about the potential for a revolution brought about by overcrowding as its 60 million citizens tried to find room on the home islands. The solution, many believed, was to travel overseas, specifically to Manchuria, which had been cleaved from Russia during the Russo-Japanese War 15 years before. And therein lay a paradox about the Japanese. On the one hand, she was caught between notions of imperialism and expansion, and on the other, concepts like liberalism, capitalism and reform. It would not be an understatement to say that the Japanese had already proved themselves a nation of reformers by 1919. Since Commodore Matthew Perry had first banged down their door in 1853 to the opening of the country with the Meiji Restoration of 1868, the Japanese had demonstrated a unique quality to swallow their pride, to forget what they thought they knew and to harness what was already truly known. They modelled their army after the Prussian, their navy after the British, their banking system after the Americans, while they sent their sons to universities in all three countries. Prince Sione, who we met in the beginning of this episode, was especially keen on France, and he spent a decade of his life there. Japanese people seem to be utterly fascinated with the new technologies, the languages, the culture, the history, the way of doing war, which these sophisticated Western societies contained. 
the West was only too happy to serve as this beacon to Japan. After all, it only confirmed what was already known, that the West was the best. Certainly in terms of making war, the Japanese thought the West had the right idea. Industrialising was not even a concept in the 1860s, but within a generation Japan boasted an industrial capacity which was eclipsing France and a navy behind only the British and German. Arguably their navy was better than either of those powers, because it had at least been sufficiently tested against the Russians in a winning effort. Winning though that effort might have been, in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05 that is, the Japanese viewed that conflict as something of a bittersweet moment. They had learned much, they gained a great deal, and they announced loudly their arrival on the world stage. But the conflict did cost a bomb, and at the peace table the Japanese found American President Teddy Roosevelt intractable and somewhat hostile to Japanese interests. This experience spoke to the incredibly inconsistent way in which the Japanese were regarded by the West. Britain, it was said with no shortage of pride, had ended her policy of splendid isolation in 1902 to come to an arrangement with Japan over its naval armaments in an alliance directed unmistakably against the Russians. By 1914, though, the Japanese were able to build their own ships at home and enjoyed a thriving industry which was buoyed and expanded by the equally thriving armaments trade. The problem with industrialization went further than the general issues of a changing workforce, pollution and learning curves, though. In Japan, there was an acute sense of anxiety over how Japan was supplied. In a dilemma which would reassert itself in the interwar years, the Japanese government, and especially the military, were concerned that their country lacked raw materials and resources necessary for industry and war production. These products would have to be imported, which made Japan vulnerable. Unless, of course, she managed to hold on to places where these resources could be extracted. As she expanded into Asia, these ideas only grew in importance and acceptance. Wars with China and Russia had garnered Japan, Taiwan, Korea and Manchuria. She had outgrown her island home, but this was not good enough. The eruption of the Great War presented an opportunity to put these ideas into practice. Should Japan remain neutral, side with the Allies or with the Central Powers? Japan must take the chance of a millennium, declared the government in autumn 1914, to establish its rights and interests in Asia. The Japanese, in short, took the path of least resistance. Germany possessed Chinese concessions in the Shantung Peninsula, as well as several archipelagos in the Pacific, like the Marshall, Carolina and Mariana Islands. These rocky outcrops were not useless lumps in the middle of nowhere any longer. To the Japanese, they were now links in a defensive belt which ran all the way around the Japanese homeland. The impetus for making war on the Germans was compiled of strategic and material concerns like these, but they proved effective and rewarding. Japan's war, Japan's version of the First World War that is, effectively ended in November 1914, having destroyed the German presence in the region, buoyed their own reputation and gained a great portfolio of new properties in the process. To some in the West, this Japanese progress was a bit too much. Weren't Asians supposed to be lazy, impressionable, greedy people? Why were the Japanese so driven and active in their efforts to expand their empire's writ and improve their standing? Why were they no longer following the Western rulebook? The simple reason was that the Japanese had outgrown that rulebook, the kind of mentality which had enabled Commodore Perry to swagger up to the heart of Japan in 1853 was impossible to imagine being put into practice 65 years later. 
Japan had been completely transformed from a feudal, agricultural, proto-medieval kingdom into a fortified, disciplined, invigorated powerhouse. It had taken two generations for this transformation to occur. Some were even alive in 1919 and remembered when the process had begun. Prince Sione was four years old when Commodore Perry's ship appeared to threaten Japan's wooden towns. Now he was the esteemed senior statesman of a great and powerful nation, which continued to outdo itself and surpass all expectations. Yet once again, for some, their sense of surprise and wonderment at the Japanese success quickly turned to jealousy, suspicion and fear. Commodore Perry had returned home in 1853, but his homeland had not sat still. The United States continued its expansion throughout the Pacific, and at virtually the same time as the Japanese, seizing the Philippines, Guam and Hawaii in rapid succession. Ethnic Japanese people who settled in America were liable to penalties and often outright abuse in the media, where William Randolph Hearst's press empire poured vitriol on the scheming caricatures which he presented, as he imagined a yellow invasion, and he was far from the only one. Washington prepared plans for a war with Japan, as a precaution, since the state of flux which had birthed both their empires showed no signs of slowing. Both were plainly operating in a power vacuum, and to the quick and intuitive power would go the spoils, or to the slow or late party, the disadvantages would fall instead. The Japanese were at it too, though. The Americans were by no means the only ones to imagine that a war with Japan could be on the cards. A retired Japanese official wrote, our next war in 1916, wherein he imagined the United States invading the homeland and Japan responding with the successive seizure of American Pacific interests. There was at least a precedent for this line of thinking. After all, a Japanese ship had not pulled up alongside Washington in 1853 and demanded that the Americans let them in or else. Discussions about Japanese vulnerability to invasion obsessed her high command and made the possession of islands like those owned by Germany seem all the more vital to the country's defence. The war had also left some bad aftertastes in Allied mouths. Japan was unfairly blamed when peace treaties or other insidious offers came her way, such as that forgotten offer coupled with the Zimmermann telegram to join Germany and Mexico against the United States. It was also felt that Japan had never pulled her weight in Europe. Who can say that in the war she played a part that can be compared, for instance, to that of France? Clemenceau asked. Japan defended its interests in the Far East, but when she was requested to intervene in Europe, everyone knows what the answer of Japan really was. Clemenceau and his peers did not seem to appreciate the fairly obvious fact that there was little to no reason for Japan to get involved in Europe at all. Why should she expend lives or monies fighting on a front which would garner her no advantages? The Allies hadn't exactly tripped over themselves as they tried to help Japan in its war effort. So Japan focused on other theatres instead, such as that opened up by the Russian Civil War in Siberia. However, this activism only served to make Woodrow Wilson more nervous, and preventing the Japanese from gaining too solid a foothold in Siberia became a plank of his policy and one of the major reasons for his intervention in that dire conflict. Suspicion of Japan may well have bled into how the publics in each of the Allied states viewed the Japanese people, but most of the hostility towards Japanese immigration represented straightforward, casual racism. Japanese statesmen and businessmen in particular complained loudly and bitterly that if Japan was a great power, and if the Allies were content to request aid from her, then why were her people refused entry into the white dominions? 
Why were Japanese school children segregated from their American peers in California? Why was Clemenceau allowed to get away with calling the Japanese delegation ugly? Why was Lloyd George not challenged when he presented a caricature of Prince Sione pulling strings like an oriental puppet master, complete with twirling moustache? This, in fact, was the way the world was in 1919, still very much divided between East and West, between concepts of us versus them, between nightmarish scenarios involving one's culture being overrun by undesirables, a scenario as unlikely and ridiculous then as it is now. But that such fantasies were peddled in the early 1900s reminds us that there was nothing particularly new under the sun when it came to scaremongering, particularly in the media outlets which rarely saw the need to provide favourable impressions of Japanese activities or peoples. This was so far from secret that the Japanese recognised Western racism and denoted its impact from an early stage. Following the Russo-Japanese War, one leading Japanese statesman complained to a German friend that Of course, what is really wrong with us is that we have yellow skins. If our skins were as white as yours, the whole world would rejoice at our calling a halt to Russia's inexorable aggression. It is difficult to argue with this interpretation, but that it was expressed at all underlined Japanese awareness of the challenges her country faced. If she was to be taken seriously, and for her people to be treated with respect across the world, these attitudes had to change. What better way to change them than with a treaty which codified this change in international law? What better time than in 1919, in line with the remaking of the world? The League of Nations, to liberal statesmen like the Delegation Games' own Baron Makino Nabuaki, represented a fantastic opportunity to rectify these unfair and stifling traditions. Nabuaki was loudly congratulatory of the efforts made in mid-February to establish a League Covenant, even though by that time the Allies had rejected Japanese requests to insert a racial clause into the Covenant. Baron Nabuaki announced on the 15th of February 1919 that I beg to add another voice to echo the congratulatory speeches that have been made on the presentation of a document, which is, perhaps, the most important document that has been compiled by man. The great leaders, with staunch purposes, have personified this great movement, a movement involving intricate problems of diverse nations, and they deserve the gratitude of their fellow men for successfully piloting to this advanced stage a most effective instrument for the maintenance of peace of the world. Their names will be written indelibly on the pages of history, and that will be the grateful acknowledgement of humanity for their labour. To a Mr. K.K. Kuayumi, an author writing in 1919 about Japan's experiences in the peace conference, there was much disappointment at this buffing of Japanese approaches. It was not simply the case, Kawayumi said, that Japanese statesmen wished for the racial equality clause to pass, but that the Japanese people anticipated it and wished for it wholeheartedly. Notwithstanding the darkly ironic fact that a man with KKK as his initials was writing about racial inequality, Kawayumi did capture something of the problem inherent within the Japanese mission to secure racial equality in spring 1919. The simple fact, Kawayumi said, was that war had not changed had the Allies felt about the Asian peoples. Kawayumi wrote, Convinced as they were of the justice of the argument advanced for the removal of racial barriers, the Japanese statesmen at the helm could not, nevertheless, see their way to put the proposition through the peace conference. 
However cogent and convincing their reasons might be in favour of the proposal, the Japanese leaders could not help but recognise that the peoples of those great Western countries who had long discriminated against the Asiatic races had not undergone a change of heart. To the contrary, they saw that even the baptism of blood and fire, from which the world had just emerged, failed to consecrate mankind to the ideals of humanity and universal brotherhood. What then would be the use of presenting to the Peace Congress such a pretentious proposal as the abolition of racial discrimination? The illustrious statesmen of the moment, Wilson, Clemenceau, Lloyd George and their enlightened associates, might be broad enough to appreciate the reasonableness of such a proposition, but they, too, were not but representatives of the multitudes of their respective countries, just as the Japanese envoy represented 60 millions, and the multitudes, whom those statesmen represented, have, to no appreciable extent, altered their attitudes toward the Asiatic peoples. We're going to put a pin in our analysis of the racial equality clause for the moment, since that mission will be taken up in the next part of this examination. Having just said that though, we won't be sticking around much longer in this episode if we attempt to confine our analysis to topics unrelated to the racial equality proposal. It was almost impossible to separate Japanese policy in spring 1919 from that idea. And the historian Naoko Shimatsu, writing in 1998, was of the opinion that the Japanese were suffering something of an identity crisis in foreign policy after the war as a result of this sense of inferiority which the West had so ingrained. Shimatsu wrote that Japan was an arrogant yet insecure power, dismissive of yet sensitive to international opinion. Domestically there was a wealth of conflicting visions of Japan's role in Asia, in terms of its status as either the leader of Asia or as one of the Western imperial powers. Because the racial equality proposal revealed more of the side of Japan which had not been adequately explored in the past, it provides an insight into how the Japanese themselves perceived their identity as being inherently dialectical as both a Western and an Asian great power. Indeed, one of the most potent messages to emerge from the ensuing analysis is the uncertain nature of Japan's international status. In 1919, Japan still had not gained enough political confidence or military strength to act more independently of the Western imperial powers. Therefore, Japan's politics of the time generally consisted of reconciling the contradictory forces of pro-Westerners and independently-minded pan-Asianists. Importantly, the racial equality proposal was one issue which revealed such internal contradictions. It should also be noted that the quest to gain some kind of concession proclaiming racial equality didn't come from nowhere, guys. It was in fact a long-running theme of Japanese foreign policy towards the West, where centuries of unequal treaties had soured relations between Asians and Europeans. As Naoko Shimatsu continues, One of the major tasks of the Meiji government after 1868 was to revise these unequal treaties in order to gain equality with the Western powers. After several unsuccessful attempts, beginning in 1878, the Japanese government finally managed to revise the unequal treaties in 1894, taking effect from 1899. However, Though the means of achieving the objective of the unequal treaties revision involved a pragmatic process, it can be argued also that the underlying motivation to achieve that objective must have been dominated by a deeper need to prove that Japan was not less than the West, but equal to it. Seen in this light, the notion of Japan's equality with the West was a highly significant underlying ideological force in its thinking on foreign relations, from the inception of modern Japanese foreign policy. 
From this historical perspective, it may not be too surprising that it was the Japanese who submitted the racial equality proposal in 1919. What was it that I said again about moving on from the racial equality clause? Whoops. Well, we should ask another question, though. Let's try this. How compatible were the proclaimed values of Woodrow Wilson with those of Japan? By that I mean it's very easy to view the Japanese as a bad guy, thanks to the apocalypse of the Second World War and the atrocity-as-policy approach she took to making war two decades later. But this can colour our ability to research this period reasonably. Woodrow Wilson is himself lampooned for giving in to Japanese demands during this period, those that dealt with territorial concessions at least, out of the fear that if he did not, the whole conference would collapse. He was later criticised very heavily for this. The always critical Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, noted retrospectively in 1921 that I did not believe at the time, and I do not believe now, that Japan would have made good her threat to leave the conference. But Wilson's gullibility and susceptibility to Japanese threats were not the only flaws in his ideology. The president has also justifiably been accused of fastening the blinders when imagining American policy in the post-war era. By that I mean, Wilson could not, or would not see, that few ideas in the world could be universally applied across the entire world. This failure underlines something of the naivety inherent in Wilson's approach to those countries which he did not understand very well, such as Japan. This is addressed by the historian Noriko Kawamura, writing for the Pacific Historical Review in 1997, who said, Wilson's failure to resolve his disagreements with Japan stemmed to no small extent from his firm belief in the universality of his internationalist ideals. Nations that failed to adhere to his ideals he considered morally wrong. He unilaterally applied his ideals to the East Asian situation without a full comprehension of regional realities. His knowledge of East Asia was limited and coloured by reports from diplomats and experts who shared his zeal for America's mission in East Asia. By treating Japan as a morally inferior state and turning America's rivalry with Japan in East Asia into a crusade against an uncivilised force, Wilson made it impossible to find a workable compromise. Wilson's inflexible unilateralism was one of the limitations of his idealism. Indeed, much remained unresolved between the Americans and Japanese following the conclusion of the Treaty of Versailles, which Japan nonetheless did sign even without the insertion of the racial equality clause. Only a few years later, the two were still attempting to resolve their issues, primarily on the theatres of naval defence and planning, but with little in the way of inspired results. Within that attempt to satisfy both sides with a comprehensive solution to naval rivalry, existed intractable differences in how both countries viewed Asia and China in general. To the Japanese, this was a theatre for expansion, which was vital for the lifeblood of Japanese interests. To the United States, China was akin to the robbed merchant, and Washington was the good Samaritan. This attachment to the notion of saving China and preserving what was called an open-door policy continued until the victory of Mao's party in the Chinese Civil War, for which President Truman was heavily criticised for, for letting China slip through his fingers, as though China had been his to hold to begin with. Indeed, with the failure of the racial clause, the Paris Peace Conference seemed to confirm Japanese insecurities, rather than soothe them. One can only imagine what would have happened had Western observers approved the affirmation of racial equality in 1919. Yet, it is by no means controversial to note that such a leap forward in human progress was 
simply a step too far for the world which 1919 housed. Spurned in this theatre, Japan sought guarantees over territorial possessions which she had seized from Germany, above all the Shantung Peninsula, that piece of land which jutted out from China and pointed towards Korea. Holding the lucrative port of Sing Tao, Shantung was an incredibly valuable and strategically useful staging post for further expeditions into China, not to mention a tremendous means by which Japanese interests in Korea could be protected and guaranteed. Of course, the sheer value of the place moved the Chinese to ask for it back. It was in fact where Confucius had been born, and it was also in protest that this campaign of the Chinese might be successful, that the Japanese had announced their intention to leave the conference in late April. Bluff or not, the move was a boon to Japanese fortunes, even if it brought forward the worst aspects of the characters of both sides. The Japanese, having had their inferiority complex confirmed, doubled down on their mission to secure Japan within a succession of island fortresses. Having found no succour in the West, Japanese statesmen turned to what they knew and what the West had taught them, lessons which were to lead almost directly to the Day of Infamy on the 7th of December, 1941. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.